Welcome to the Questions of Life podcast. I'm Kath. I'm here with Velma. Hello. Paulette. Hi, Kath. Donald. Hello. And a wonderful live audience. Fantastic. In our episode this week, we are listening to Velma and Paulette share their experiences of racism. They're going to be talking about how it's affected them, how God has helped them, and also giving us practical advice and a little bit of a challenge as to how we can get involved in making a stand against racism. Enjoy the show. Now, this evening is a little bit different. We have been exploring various questions about faith and Christianity. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at discrimination. And we want to carry on that theme and those questions this evening as we look at the whole area of racism. And we're delighted to have Velma and Paulette with us. And uh, it takes a great deal of courage to come and to join with us and to share their experiences. And so tonight we're going to hear some of the things that they and their families have been through. We're also going to explore with them how that affected them and what has happened to their faith in the midst of it. And then we're going to end by looking at ways that we can encourage each other and bring about change in our lives and in our community as we stand up against racism and all that's going on there. So that is where we're going with our session. Now, as always, we would love for you to be involved with it. We'd love to hear your questions and your comments as we go through this evening. So there are two ways that you can get in touch with us. The first is that you can email us. The email address is very simple. It is QOL, short for Questions of Life, at SCBC. .org.uk. The lovely Paula is on the end of those emails. She'll ping your questions and your comments to my phone, and I'll be able to feed those into our session. Or you can text us. Donald, our texting monitor, what is the number? 0754-489-9698. So do get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Now, tonight, Donald is also asking questions. Is it a bit of a relief not to be the one not knowing what's going to be thrown at you? It is. It is. It's, it's a good, it's nice. I'll be gentle as much as I can. Yeah, he always says that, but it never happens. So we're going to kick off, uh, and let's just start off by finding out just a little bit about the two of you. So tell us, and we'll start with you, Velma. Tell us just a little bit about who you are. Good evening. My name is Velma Troco, and I'm a member of this church. Um, I've been a Christian for many, many years, about 47 of the number of years I've been alive. And I, am, I was also trained as a medical doctor specializing in tropical medicine. I am a widow. My husband of 33 years died suddenly about seven years ago. I've got four grown-up children, two grandchildren, and um, yes, I think that's about, uh, I'm from Liberia originally. So we moved to the UK in 1990, spent the first two years in Liverpool area. And then we moved to Sutton Coalfield in 1992. And we've been here since. Um, fortunately for us, when we came, we became part of this church and we've, we've been here as part of this church for a long time. I was saying to Kath that I feel like I own this church. I'm part of the furniture here. <laughs> I love that. I love that You phrase. do own this you church, Velma. I, I can confirm that. I love it. <laughs> yes. I say the highs and the lows of Sutton Coffee Baptist Church, I share it. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Um, I don't know if there's anything else. Mm, no, no, that's, that's great. That's yeah. wonderful. Paulette, okay. tell us a bit about you. Hi, everybody. I'm Paulette Kumar, and you may gather from my surname that I'm married outside of my culture. I'm married to an Indian man. So um, our family is very multicultural. So we know a lot about this topic from different angles. Um, I'm not a doctor like Velma, mm. but I do have a degree. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I've got an IT degree and I am married as well. I have two children and they are teenagers who are real teenagers. <laughs> mm. Can we just say? <laughs> teenagers, oh my gosh. So I thought because they're grown up in church, because we've been Christians virtually all of our lives, um, my husband came into the faith as a result of being um, spoken to by people at university when he was searching for something a little bit more meaningful in his life and he found Christianity. But certainly we've um, known each other for the good part of 30 years. And, um, you know, we have enjoyed and embraced Christianity throughout all of our marriage life. But our children are typically teenagers. <laughs> um, in regards to my bringing up um, or my growing up was I come from parents that came here as immigrants from Jamaica. and. They came here in the 60s, mid-60s. And um, we were brought up, first of all, sort of in the Birmingham area in Hansworth, then in the Samuel area. When I got married, shortly afterwards, I moved to Sutton Coalfield, and we've been a part of this church environment for quite a few years now. Super, fantastic, thank you. Well, I'm going to ask you some questions. Um, we've, we've met and talked a little bit about this on Zoom, but we're going to ask you some questions firstly about your experiences of racism and of uh, overt racism and sometimes some sort of some passive or, or not overt. And I think that the reason we're doing this is because we feel it's really important, particularly important for people like me, white, male, privileged in lots of ways, there are a lot of things that happen that we don't register, that we don't see, that we don't understand. And we felt over a number of years, I mean, we've talked a lot about this over the last two or three years, that it's really important for people like me to understand the kind of experiences that you've both been through and still experience. And to share that with the church, that we might maybe a change our perceptions and do more to be supportive and more to stand for justice and for compassion. So some of the stories you're going to tell us are quite personal and we're tremendously grateful that you've been willing to do that for our benefit and for my benefit. So Paulette, just tell us just a little bit about your experience as a schoolgirl. So I was brought up first and foremost um, in a school in the West Bromwich area, which was quite a mixed school. And 
never even thought about things to do with racism because it was such a melting pot of people. But then my mom um, had the unfortunate uh, incident in her life that my, my father left and um, she needed to find a place to live. And she decided to move to a place which was a working class, um, predominantly white area. She didn't know at the time that that area had a lot of National Front people in the environment. So I went to school in this particular um, neighborhood, shall we say, and much to my surprise, at one point I was the only black child in the junior school, as we called it then. And in that part of the primary school, they had a lot of children who were quite cruel, really, and didn't understand, I'd say, about people of color. Um, probably never met anybody of color before. And what I had time and time again is um, children that after school, in school it was bad, and yeah, teachers, especially my first teacher, wasn't particularly nice to me. Um, she would put me down and say, well, actually, you know, you don't read as well as you think you do. And, you know, when I said to her, you know, those Peter and Jane books, you know, I've passed this and I've done all of that. And no, I don't think you have. And so that was the, the first little thing that we thought, mm, that's not so nice. But the children, when I used to come home from school, um, would oftentimes beat me up and call me names, Baki Sambo and, you know, Nig Nog and whatever. And we'd have this repeated over and over and over again. And what I would try and do is, there was two ways you could go home. And I'd always think, which way are they, are they gonna be? So I'd think, okay, I'm gonna just escape them tonight and go another way. One particular night, they got me and they got me really good because the, what I found there was two gangs of them and one gang would be on one path and the other gang would be on the other path but this particular day they it was like like the two of two sets of them put together and they just decided that they were going to really really beat me up and the name calling and all the other stuff. And I think I was so badly torn up in terms of my clothes and so on, that one of the moms, I remember Ashley's mom saw me, St. Mark's Road in Tipton, and she looked at me and just said, what's gone on? And I told her, and she decided to call the police and um, the police were called in. I think that what they did is they talked to the school and between the school and the headmaster, they decided to invite my mom in to talk about what had happened. And the school, the headmaster and my mom, as I sat outside the headmaster's door, made the decision that they couldn't alter the children's behavior I never remembered them saying anything in assembly 
or coming into the classroom and talking to those children. But what they decided to do is to take me out of the situation that I would go home from school earlier than the other children in order for them to address what was going on. So that was my first experiences of racism as a child. And then I know that Velma's got incidents of, because Velma was brought up in Liberia, she perhaps didn't have those childhood um, incidents. But I know having spoken to Velma, when I speak to her about her children, which is the next generation on from me, that her children have had a lot of racism within school. And so Velma can tell you a little bit about mm. that. I'm going to hold you for a second, Velma, if I may, and we'll come to that. I just want to just pick one question about that experience, because the way that was handled, the, the, the children weren't confronted about what they were doing wrong. You were forced to change your behavior. How has that kind of pattern, I mean, is that a pattern that you've experienced? But how has that left, how is that, as you reflect on that now, mm. how do you feel about that? For me, I feel like it's extremely unfair, but in a way, it has taught me all of my life to adjust to the racism that I faced over and over and over again. So you become, um, you constantly are adjusting to what I would say, white people's way of doing things. So you know that things are unfair, such as the man when you are going into the shop and handing the money to the person, and when they just put the, the change in, they drop it into your hand, or they push it onto the counter, and you've seen other people being treated differently, that they get the money in their hands fine. And so you learn over time to keep on adjusting and adjusting over and over and over again to what people perceive is their okay thing to do. Mm. We're so grateful to you for sharing that. I think we, we, we want to say that's wrong that you've had to adjust. And that's something that we, as people who believe in Jesus, need to address. Because maybe we haven't seen it before, but we need to hear it and change it. Velma, tell us some of your experience. Yes, you know, as Paulette said, you know, I didn't grow up in this country. And I think when I came here, I didn't expect any kind of racist thing because it wasn't anything I was used to. And, and when we, the first two years we were here, we were in Liverpool, and I can't remember instance there where we were in Liverpool of having any experience of racism. But when we came to, to Sutton, I remember talking to my son, and I mean, I've got lots of stories, but we can't talk all tonight. And I was talking to my son, when was his first experience? And we arrived in Sutton in 1992. And he said to me, mommy, 1992, he was eight years old. His first experience, they were playing football. You know, we lived right uh, on Rectory Road, off Rectory Road. He see, and he and the little boys in the, the block of flats where we were living, were playing, and the two Asian boys were there, they were playing. He said, and these bigger um, uh, white boys came while they were playing football and started to call him, call them names. He said, call him nigger and nigger cone, and then smack him on the face. 
he said, and he, he couldn't understand because he didn't even know what it meant. What, what does nigger mean? Because he's never heard the thing before. Never have that name in, in Liberia where we came from. He was just eight. He said, and, and then it happened again. This time the boys, they were playing again in the park and the boys took the ball away from them, bigger boys, and kicked it in somebody's yard. And um, they couldn't get the ball and they said, well, why you did that? And they just laughed and said, nigger, and they ran off. Going to school at, at, Fair, at uh, Fairfax too, he had the same thing, they would wait for him after school, beat him up. One time he was in Sutton, right in front of um, um, Thomas Cook, and they were trying to, these boys came and they were beating him up. In fact, he told me that today, he said, and the sad thing was, the police were standing right there and they did nothing. The only people who helped, he said, well, the bus driver opened the door when he saw them really hitting him opened the bus door because it wasn't time to open it. And he said, come in, come in. And then he closed the door behind him so that he could get away from these guys who were beating him up. He said, and the police did nothing. I mean, he's got instances and instances of different times. One time they took him by his head. He was at the university in the, in the, the, the club. He and four other friends, the, this man came and just, he said it was dark in the club and he said something to him in his ears, and he didn't hear what he said, so he just said, what did you say? And then he, said, he just saw the man grab him by his neck with his fingers just under his chin here and drag him up the stairs and threw him out of the club. He said it was so bad, his friends were shocked. So the next day, they went back to the, to the club to report to the, to the um, owner of the club, and he said, well, he gave the the bouncer, this was the bouncer who threw him out. He gave the bouncer a black eye. It was in the dark. What black eye could he have given the, you know, the bouncer? Mm -hmm. So I said, uh, why you didn't say, tell the police? He said, well, I've had experiences with the police for years while I lived in Sutton and nobody came to my rescue. Why would they do it for me now? And he didn't even tell us about it, you know, until later. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not just, you know, and when I think about my brother, you know, he was walking down the road one evening just like this, and out of the blue, the police, you know, grab him up and start questioning him about things. And, you know, m my brother is educated finance director, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter just because of the color of his skin. And perhaps there might have been something that happened locally. It's like, well, you're in the local area, so you will be um, asked about this particular thing. Um, and because we have sons now, um, especially my son, I will say to him, be very careful about being out at nighttime. Be very careful when you're in a shop. So we think about a shop, and my husband constantly says to him, don't wear your hoodie and don't put your hoodie up because people will see you and see you and think something that, you know, you're a hoodlum or something like that. Now, my son is a very, very bright child. However, I constantly have to say to him and remind him, when you go into a shop, be careful. And when we do go into, we are quite fortunate that we've got Marks and Spencer's food hall down the road from us, or any time we go, and very often times we'll go and we'll go to self-checkout, 
but at the self-checkout, I always say, get your receipt. Because we've had it at times when people are following us around the shop, whether it's that shop or some other shop, but especially when you go to department stores like House of Fraser, you'll have people who are keeping a more keen eye, shall we say, when you are going around the shops. So we just have to constantly have this adjustment all the time and are reminding our children, you are black, you are different. So therefore, because of your difference, then make certain that you adjust yourself accordingly, which, I mean, my son says, I just can't wait to get out of this area because he is, he's tired and he's just a 17-year-old boy, but he is tired of some of the stuff from he's had in primary school growing up with all the adjustments that he's had to make. And psychologically, it is quite challenging for many of us as black people. And, and Velma, you were telling me about something that happened with you with one of the shops as well, weren't you? Oh, lots of times. I remember when Woolworths was here and I go in there to do shopping for my, for my girls. So they will go with me and we do the shopping and I'll be standing in the queue. And, and it, it used to puzzle me really. Um, and then there would be a, you know, a, a white person maybe behind me, one person in front of me or something like that. And they will serve the one in front of me. And then I think, well, I'm gonna be the next one to be served. You would think, no, the, you know, the, the attendant would look past me and then speak to the person behind me, take their stuff and serve them before they serve me. And it used to, in fact, at one point I used to think, am I invisible? <laughs> you know, am I invisible here or something? that they can't see me. And it wasn't only once or twice. And I went up north and the, the same thing, I'm in the queue and, and I used to really wonder, am I invisible? That, you know, that people would sort of bypass me and talk to the person behind me or the person in front of me. It's, because, you, me it's because you're short. <laughs> <laughs> you see, if you're tall like me, I wish that was the case, but I've had similar incidences as five foot seven that I am, but yeah. But, but for me, it is just, horrific you know to 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 hear what's happened in the past and to hear what's happening today the very fact that you have to say in 2020 to your teenage son remember you're black don't wear a hoodie don't put your hood up get the receipt think about this think about think about that teenagers have got so much going on in their lives and now we're we're having to add all of this in the pressure the mental turmoil the emotions we 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 take it for granted we we go shopping we don't have to think about any of these things have i got my card with me am i going to be able to pay wouldn't cross my mind to think oh i'm going to need a receipt but yeah. it is truly horrific yeah absolutely horrific and wrong right I and mean, that was the reason why when i finished university he couldn't wait to get away from from, from here, because this was all he knew. And I said to him, I'm sure you go to London, it's gonna be about the same thing, but he went anyway. He said in London, it's there, but it's different. It's like, you know, it's not as close as, as here. So he had a, a different experience of racism in London. He had his share of it as well. Cause you know, yeah, there's, there's just been loads of stuff. 
And I remember um, about the home life. And uh, when we first moved into Sutton, um, we, when we first bought our first house, actually, um, we moved to this area. And the week, two, a couple of weeks before we moved into the house, we'd already exchanged and stuff like that. We had some family members from Manchester visiting us. And so when they came, we said, oh, come on, let's go. We're going to go and see where we're moving to. And because we used to live at Good Hope Hospital, it was just within walking distance. So we walked to the place that Sunday afternoon just to see the house. And um, we'd walk, we looked down the road, and then we came back. Thought nothing of it. A few weeks later, after we moved, to the, uh, we moved into the house, I was out in the, in, the, on the, in the yard, in the garden, picking up stuff, and I saw this little sheet of paper. And I thought, oh, I wonder why, where this flew from. So picked it up, and then there was a writing on it. So I just opened it to see what was written on it. It was just a small, like a post-it note thing. And written on there was somebody on the road was writing a note, I figured out to the woman who owned the house, to say, did you see the 12 black faces on your drive? Ha <laughs> ha. Actually, what I thought was, God, you really wanted me to see this? Because it's been three or four weeks since the people moved out of the house. So why did that little sheet of paper remain there for me to pick up to see? Why? I couldn't get it around my head. But then I also thought, there are lessons I learned that even in difficult times, I developed something. And the fact that I, was, you know, I saw this made me think, yeah, well, there's struggles here. Because I didn't think there were going to be struggles on that road. But I said, there's struggles on this road, and I need to prepare for it. Yeah, and, um, and I mean, even with names and so on, um, my husband, uh, coming from Asian background, you know, one of the things that some Asians are having to do is to and in this, in this day and age still, is having to change their names and application forms in order for them to obtain jobs. So um, one of my friends who teaches about um, racism at Birmingham and Derby University, she was telling me about a piece of research where they had um, lawyers and they had, I think it was something like 60 lawyers who put in applications, and they got a proportion of them to, that were white and black to put their names on these applications, but they made six mistakes within the application. And what they found is that very oftentimes, the people that were white and did not have different type of names, they um, were able to be overseen in terms of the mistakes that were on the application and very often times those applications would go through but whether it's that or the names that are having to change or even like me when I finished my degree I went and lived in the States for a while and um, I remember applying for a job in the New York Times and I'm thinking yeah you know I'm gonna get this job and everything like that and at the time there was just plenty of jobs going um, in, in New York 
And so I, and, and I'd been to New York, my dad lives in New York, so I'd been to New York time and time again, so spent lots of summers in, the New, in New York. So I did apply for this particular job, and I called up and said, you know, I'd like to come, and they, especially the British, oh my gosh, and it was like, oh yes, come in, please come in, please come in. And then I went, and the secretary, filled in my name and the application form and yeah and then somebody came to receive me to go then into the interview and the guy said to me the job's gone um, and I said but I've just filled in the application form and they said to come in and he said the job's gone mm. and again for me that was a great lesson because it was in your face. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to question it. Mm -hmm. We knew exactly what. Because what I did is when I went back home, is a day or so later I called and the job was still there. Mm. So, you know, that kind of stuff just... Mm. <laughs> yes, and even with, with my son up looking for, when he finished university, he'd been trying for jobs and trying for jobs. He was so discouraged. I remember coming down one day and meeting him in, the, in his bedroom with the covers over his head, middle of the day. And I said, what's the matter? Why are you, you know? He said, oh, I'm just so fed up. No, I'm not even getting one, you know, um, answer back. No, nothing calling through. So I said, well, let me see. What have you done? And you know, I just said, I said, God, what shall we do here? This boy, this man, this boy is getting very discouraged. And it's like, I just heard this thing swap his name around. Now, he's got an African name, which is it's out of the Bible, actually. It's Abba. Um, and it's the shortened form for, instead of being Abba, it's just Ab. And his second name is Archibald. Because that's my brother's name, okay? And I don't know whether we've got Scottish connections done or probably we'll do. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I said, swap your name around. He'd sent, I don't know how many applications. I am telling you. I looked over his CV. I said, okay, we're just going to tweak it a little bit. And he sent the application. He put it online. I am telling you, within 30 minutes, he had so many, you know, about three or four comebacks for interview. And he went. Anyway, <laughs> he got the interview. And you see, my son, Ab, he speaks, you know, kind of posh. like. It. So he went for the interview. He got uh, the training, and he, that's when he moved to London, and he got the jobs in London. When he came back to Sutton Coalfield about three years ago, trying to get a job in Sutton, almost impossible. He will, he, because his name was, it was Archibald A. Trocona, he would go for the interview, and then after the interview, well, the job we have is not really, um, you're not really qualified for it, well, how come I had the first, I was calling for interview. Well, or you too qualified for it. It would be either you're not qualified or you're too qualified. So eventually he just decided, I think I'm just gonna try and work for myself. So he started to work. Actually, that what he's been doing the last three years is trying to develop his own business. And what, what's his business in? Let's promote Ab's business here tonight. What's he doing? Yeah. Well, he, he does branding and you know, and, and website development. And um, so if you're starting a new business, 
it's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very good on Apple, because you see, he worked for Apple for many years. Mm. And he, he worked in the, in the genius group, you know, the people who do all the, if you want to know what to do with your computer and how to get it working. He was part of the genius group, so he, he's, he's very good in that way. But he's, uh, yeah, he likes the creative bit of, of the internet. Yeah. Right, go up. So you're living with constant suspicion. People, you feel people suspicious of you. Mm -hmm. You're living with constant, am I going to be discriminated, rejected? Mm. Sort of all the time. How, how do you, I mean, how do you live with that level of fear? Is it fear? Is that the word you would describe him? Well, how would you describe it? I wouldn't call it fear, not at all. Um, like I said, you have to adjust. Um, I think one of the things that helped me, I was talking to Velma about this, is that I've had to go through therapy in order for me to adjust uh, to some of the things that I hear. So when I see, for example, my school, my children who live across the way from the school. I mean, we literally live from where I am to where Kath is to where the school gate is. And you see how people can be quite rude to us. Um, and children will come into our home for a party, but you know, certain children will say, you can't come to my house because of, and my daughter's had that because you're brown. Um, we, we just have learned through the love of God. So even recently we had a neighbor, we've had two doors from us, a neighbor that's moved in and she started to have trouble with our next door neighbors. And she decided, that she would say to our next door neighbor, if you guys carry on, then we are going to rent our house to Pakis. And this is what just happened about a couple of months ago. So we are constantly having to hear stuff. My daughter at school, people are touching her hair, look at her hair and it's different and what's going on with your hair, oh, constantly. What you have to do, I believe, is put in some therapy, but mainly it's because of the love of God that we put into our lives to help us to cope. So I think sometimes when you see some black people, and I was, I talk, I was taught this terminology recently about microaggression, that sometimes it's like having a mosquito bite and you have one and then you have another and you have another and before you know it, you become very ill because of all of this constant battling with the stuff that's going on. But in order for you not to be aggressive or to be mentally insane sometimes with, with stuff, it is, what to putting in place what my mom said is forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they do and putting in the love of Jesus into it. Because if it was not for Christ in my life, I can say categorically, I would hate every white person on the planet 
because of so much. Because when you've lived a, long, a life as long as I have, and you've been part of it over and over and over again, it takes the love of God and the courage that God gives you to be able to say 70 times seven times a day, I can forgive and I can get over this, but it has taken me time and time again in therapy. And I know that my children are affected by the racism. I know that things are happening in our home because of the anger of some of the things that happened to us. And we keep on pushing in about love and about the love of God and that, you know, we have to see beyond the faults and see the need. And this is one of the reasons why we can do this talk, Velma and I get today, because we want to help people to understand that there is a challenge for us. It is real for us but we are trying to open up people's eyes to see that we're not, we're not all bad people, people of color, and we have real life experiences which cause us to be hurt. But what is it that you then can do for mm. us or for yourself to make certain that life becomes easier for black people, for people of color, for um, even for yourselves, the way that we would talk with you and support you and you support us. Uh, I think that analogy of if you're constantly bitten, then you, it, it, it has a cumulative effect. I, I had a very profound experience for me that it sounds incredibly trivial in your context, but it makes, helps me understand what you mean. Uh, my name's Donald Campbell. It's a Scottish name. I have Scottish parents. When I was a student, I was placed at a student placement in a fairly rough estate in Edinburgh, a very rough estate with a Baptist church. And I went to a house, and the, everybody was uh, Scottish, and everybody was quite rough. And I was introduced, this is Donald and I felt a great warmth and whatever, and, it was a thing. and then they said, after about 10 minutes, would I say a few words? And I opened my mouth, and I spoke with an English accent. And I couldn't prove to anybody else what that felt like, but I felt that room change, mm. and I felt scared. And I was the same color, and my family was from the same area, but because I had a different accent, I was perceived as English, and it's difficult to explain in that moment, so I fully understand that you're living with what I experienced for half an hour, which made me deeply uncomfortable and I've never forgotten. You experience that on so many occasions, and I'm in admiration for your faith, admiration. I think it's incredible that what you've just shared, that, that, that concept that they know not what they do. Velma, how, have you, how do you cope with it? Well, I guess, I guess part of it is, as I also say, uh, Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Because, you know, I guess I've come to the conclusion that, well, all white people are not like that. I got loads of, you know, white friends. And, you know, I've lived among white people 
I could say all my life. Even living in Liberia, we, I lived, we had white friends who came to the country. My godmother, one of my, my, uh, my godmother, they were, the family were friends with my parents. So in Liberia, my godmother was a German woman. We had a German family. And, um, and because of the job my father did in, in, in Liberia, we always had um, visitors in white and black and blue, you know, whatever color. So I've always lived with, with, uh, with white people. And so it was kind of strange to experience, you know, almost racism here. Um, but then I guess the people here are predominantly uh, white, whereas where I come from in Liberia, everybody there is predominantly black. The thing that helps me is when I became a Christian, that's why when I, when I described myself first, that I was born and I was named Velma. And when I became a Christian, that was the next big thing that happened to me. Okay, so I became a Christian even before I got married, even before I finished university, I became a Christian. And when God changed my heart, he did, he changed my heart. And so that was the first thing that I've noticed when I became a Christian. It's almost like people took on a different look. My, the way I saw people was different. And so that even when people did you know, wrong to me and treated me in a bad way, at first, I, if the situation happened, I probably would dismiss it and then if it happened again, or if I think about it two or three times, if I went home and it came back into my mind, or for example with my children, two or three times, and then I will go straight to God with that. And I say, Father, this thing is bugging me. Please help me, tell me what to do. Because I don't want it to mess up with my head. Please tell me what to do. And oftentimes, when I pray over things like that, God will come back to me and Jesus will, you know, we just, I will just remember, yes, Jesus is forgive them, they know not what to do. And sometimes, God tells me, um, you show love to that person. And I know it depends on how bad it is, okay? But even with the bad things, um, he will still say, find a way. And I have discovered in my experience as a Christian that when I ask God to help me to show love, to come back with, with love, um, it makes such a difference to me. And sometimes, even the person who has done the evil to me, now the people who did the bad things to my children, most of them I don't know. But the people who did racist things to me, on my road and other places I've, I've, you know, I've come across here in, in my experience in Sutton, but particularly the people who live next to me, I deliberately showed them love. And I'm telling you, it worked magic. I'm telling you, <laughs> what, it what worked magic. What do you mean, magic. it worked magic? It worked, well, <laughs> because the attitude changed. Right. The attitude changed. The people who live next door to us, I remember when we first moved there, I invited them to come round. In fact, the first thing that happened was, they put the house on sale two, two, about a month after we moved. Well, nobody bought the house. It was up for sale for about six months. And then the funny thing was, 
the, the Pakistani, no, I think he's Pakistani or anyway, he's Asian, who lived in the flats with us at Good Hospital. They came to see the house and they, they chose not to buy it. So after about six months or so, nobody else came to look at the house. So they finally took the house off the market. So when they took the house off the market, well, I invited them over for, for, Sunday, you know, for Sunday lunch, where the couple came. And then when they were leaving, the woman said to me, she said, well, don't expect us to invite you to our house, even though you've invited us. So I said, oh, no, don't worry about that. That wasn't the reason I invited you. I just invited you because you're my neighbor, and I wanted to find out a little bit about you. So don't worry, I wasn't expecting that at all. So I found her coming back with, with, with love. You know, there's something in the Bible that says it's like putting hot coals on your enemy's head when you show them love. And um, so the way I handle it, like I say, is I pray and I just ask God for the grace. I just ask God for the grace. And it's not easy. It is hard. But I keep, I keep doing it. And when it comes back to me, I ask God again for the grace to forgive and to let it go. You're remarkable. Fantastic. Kathy, you've got a question I from have, people. I, I just think it is incredible. You know, to be hurt and damaged by people once and to forgive is huge. But this is something that you're living with day in, day out. This isn't something that happened years ago in the past and you've been working it through. It's a constant forgiveness. And the fact that in both of you there is no bitterness. Both of you there is no, I'm going to get my own back and my revenge. I just think is incredible. It's an incredible testimony to the power of God, but also to your willingness to do mm. the right thing and to be godly people in the midst of a situation where you could so easily say, do you know what, stuff it. I've been treated unfairly. Right, what can I do to get my own bag? But you are sowing love and positivity and want to bring about change. And I think that's incredible. I, I, I honestly do. Hmm. So all power to you girls, because you're, you're absolutely okay, can amazing. I, yeah, can I just say one thing? I remember um, years ago when, when I didn't know, it must have been a few years after we moved to this house, the, the then pastor of this church was Alan Payne. And Alan came to our house. I don't know whether I asked him to come or how he got there. But anyway, this afternoon we were talking. And I was just sharing with him that Ab was having difficulty, you know, he was, I said, Alan, he, he is, he's becoming aggressive, he's not doing what he's supposed to do, he's, and it's concerning to us, and we, you know, that's not the way we were brought up, he was brought up. And then Alan looked at me, and he said, Velma, is Ab being bullied at school or treated in an unfair way? I said, what do you mean? And then he said to me, he said, before you came here, he said, there was another family in our church and their son, they had a similar struggle. He said, and they had to leave the area because their, their son was being, you know, they had all these racial problems at school. And so they, they had to move away from here. He said, ask Ab, check on him. So that day Ab came from school. I said, come here, tell me what's happening with you. And then he began to tell us, tell me a few things, some of the things that he was experiencing and that he had been experiencing even from primary school. This was secondary school. And um, he'd just gone into secondary school. So Alan was the first person who alerted me to it. I didn't even realize. Like I said, well, no, I wasn't used to, you know, it was not a strange phenomenon. I didn't think they were being done to our children. Mm. So then I found out and then we started to keep 
you know, eye on it. There were a few times I had to go to the school to, to, to tell the school, you know, to speak to the, um, to the headmaster, and I said, um, you, know, you know, we're planning to go back to our country, you know, I'm talking, I said, please, I want you to give our children extra work, because we're going back home and they're gonna demand more of them. And um, there was a point in time where I had to talk when he was in A-levels, I had to have a meeting with the, with the head of sixth form and the, the, uh, the, the headmaster of the school. And I, you know, I was really upset that day and I said, look, I don't expect you to treat my son this way. And we, 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 I know children misbehave, but I expect you to encourage him and not to tell him that he's not going to amount to anything. I say, I am not going to have that. I was so upset that day. When we came from the, from the meeting, I said, Mommy, I never expected you. <laughs> he said, and, and Mommy, I never expected you to talk so hard. I said, yeah. I didn't expect that myself. I don't even know where it came from. <laughs> and that's the sad thing is because even my children have said, Mom, I don't even tell you some things because yeah. we know that what you're going to do. Mm. So they're afraid of us even confronting people. So um, this last couple of weeks, my daughter said to me, Mom, there was a group set up at school online which called themselves People Against Black Coons and Other Things. And I was like, what, Saffron? And she just said, Mom, you would not believe the stuff that they're putting in this group. Fortunately, some parent found out, got the police involved, and they've been expelled. Hmm. But that was two weeks ago that that happened. Mm. But when, when she told me about it, and she's like, mom, please don't go to school. Don't, because if they know that I've reported it, I'm going to get it. And, and this is what we constantly are having to, mm. to battle with. That, that follows on. I've got a question here from Steve. He's uh, texted in, and uh, it's for you, Paulette. Steve's actually here in the church live with us this evening. He says, good evening. As mentioned, your husband is Indian. Do you find the experience, he experiences different ways of racism from yourself? Also, with your children having two mixed-race parents, do they find reactions worse? I think, um, does Corky or Colvinda... I, I call love him Corky. Corky. I like that. That's great. <laughs> My husband is named after Corky the cat, a, a cartoony character from a magazine because he used to drink a lot of milk and it stuck with him. It's brilliant. So Corky the cat, um, does he face racism differently from, I think, you know, he gets his stuff. He's in the NHS and he has him and uh, he's a manager in the NHS and him and a number of managers have talked about how on that side of the NHS if you're not a doctor and so on and the other side of the NHS how how much of a struggle it is to get beyond a certain point mm. and they constantly talk about that um, of people of color whether Asian or black or any other kind of color they said there is a big thing and they actually have a program within the part of the NHS that he's in which talks about the challenges that you will have as a black person or as a person of colour um, 
within that environment, there's an actual proper program for managers and, and they constantly have that problem. Do my children have problems with the fact that we are both um, of different kind of nationalities together? Yes, they do have problems, but we do have problems even ourselves. We have black people or people from Afro-Caribbean or African kind of um, backgrounds who are anti-me because of what I've done. And there's Asian people, and the Asian people don't like black people generally. And so when we moved, oh, when we got married and moved to Hansworth, I had I remember walking out of our, our house at the time, and somebody spat in front of us because it was you guys dared to get married. And there's a whole bunch of stories of people who, on both sets of sides, constant battling with that. So we've had battles, our children will have battles. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's like, how dare we have married for love? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, uh, time's <laughs> defeating us, so I'm going to move us on. Mm. You know, we started at the beginning with your story about how you were made to adjust rather than confronting those that were bullying you. And one of the things that I feel very, very strong, I think we as a leadership of this church feel very strongly, is that it is not for you to have to adjust to us. It is for us as white people to do the right thing, to live rightly. That doesn't just mean that we personally live rightly with you. It's that we support, deal with what we see or learn of or hear, that we stand up. I think it's one of the important biblical understandings is that we stand alongside and for those who are oppressed in any shape or form. So the last part of what I want to ask you is what do you think practically, what kind of things can people like me do? Mm. Um, I have a list of different things, but one of the things that comes straight to my mind is I was on a Zoom call recently with some folks from um, Portland, Oregon, and they had a white official guy on there, um, part of the government, and they were having a lot of the troubles in that area because of the George Floyd um, incident. And that official was saying about two o'clock at night, they were there and they were praying, because um, it's a Christian group, and they were praying about um, that it would die down that night. And they gave me an opportunity on that call, and I was one of colour of about 30 or so people. And they asked me if I would um, talk. And they said to me, what is it, a similar kind of question. And, and this guy said, you know, can I just say, Paulette, I'm sorry. And that really brought a lot of healing. And I said, if other people could actually appreciate what we've gone through or what we go through on a daily basis, whether that is people are unconscious bias or whether they are consciously doing it, we are facing it, that is our reality. But if people could actually be a little bit more tolerant of people of people with color, and ask sometimes even for forgiveness if God would put that in your heart to do. 
And because when that man said to me, I forgive you, I started to think about Gary and Darren and all those boys at school that beat me up time and time again. And a big wound, it was like there was a healing and there was some soothing in that wound. Um, and when people are asking for forgiveness, it is to do it meaningfully. I have friends who are in Sutton who said to me that I'm being too sensitive about wanting to uh, address the color thing, but they don't understand, so I have to forgive them. But why can't you educate yourself? Why can't you talk to black people? Why can't you watch programs and make certain that you have an understanding? And also talk to God and say, God, what can I do? How can I pray for people of color? And the list goes on, but Velma, you might want to say a few things, because I've got a whole yeah. list of things. Yes, right. I think one of the reasons why we thought it's a good thing for us to share tonight is the fact that people may not be aware of what's happening. So I believe when you become aware of it, then you need to change your thinking. Like she was saying about there may be an unconscious bias, because this is what you've known. You've grown to accept it. I mean, there are some people in the world who believe black people can only amount to being um, shop, you know, cashiers in the supermarket, or they can only be the cleaners or the, the people who, you know, do the bin things. You know, they can't amount to anything. But black people can do anything. <laughs> they can learn anything, and they can become anything they want to be. So once you find that out, that, um, well, maybe I've had some just cultural bias because this is how we've been living all along. So if you become aware, try to find a way to change your thinking that it is just, I would like to call it varying shades of skin tones. That's the difference between us, really. And then there's the culture bit that make us think certain ways. But it's really varying shades of skin tones. Because nobody's white and nobody's really black. <laughs> You know, they're dark. And also, you know, that we change our thinking. And you know, the Bible talks about changing our minds so that we can prove what is good and acceptable. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, after you've learned and you've changed your mind, yeah, educate yourself about some of the things that are happening that you didn't even want even aware of. Those blind spots that you didn't know you had. Talk to people. Get to know black people. Get to know people of different shades of color, you know. They, they're just like you. When you cut the skin off, it's all the same thing under there. You've got this identical same tissues under there. Mm -hmm. The blood the same, the veins the same, everything under there. The bones all the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we got similar stuff. And then ask questions, we said. And also one of the books that we were recommending um, is a book that, Kathy, you said that you've acquired. Yeah, it's called uh, Me and White Supremacy mm. uh, by Layla Said, and it was recommended to me uh, by someone who's part of a book group, and uh, four of them meet together, read a chapter of it, and then discuss it, and it has been revolutionary. So they're all white, middle-class ladies, 
Uh, one of them's a Christian, three of them uh, aren't Christians, and they said it has just blown their mind to be thinking about things that just never crossed their minds before, things they took for granted, just seeing life in a very different way. Uh, they, they highly recommend it. She's not a Christian, doesn't matter, but uh, there's questions, there's reflections at the end of every chapter, so you're, you're challenged to think about what is my worldview? Mm. What is my perception on these things? Do I recognise my privilege? Do I recognise those that aren't privileged? Mm. Uh, so that comes highly recommended. Yeah. And, and also, there was one thing I wanted to say is that um, there's, a, there's a trauma healing course, and I'm not yeah. just plugging this in here, mm. but there's a trauma healing course that is very helpful in helping people who, and this is for people who suffer from racism, so this is for people on the other side, you know, who fought up from our side, who may need help in, in managing these things, and it helps you to, um, to learn how to forgive and how to move on. And, um, and it's like, it's not easy, especially when violence and, you know, things are affecting your body or, I mean, like I was seeing this guy, this man who took him by the, by, the, by the head, somebody did the same thing to another guy a few years ago, and that man died, had brain damage because of the way it twisted his neck. Mm. Fortunately for him, you know, God protected him that night and nothing bad happened. So there are things, things we can do. Educate yourself, ask questions, check your own self, where your blind spot is, where your unconscious bias is, and then... Um, Search on YouTube for educational stuff. Don't be silent is one of the main things. Don't be silent. When you see things that are wrong, please don't be silent. Stand up for what is right. Yeah. And you may Can not I... be racist, but you need to be anti-racist. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, because there's a yes. difference. Yes. You may not be racist, and I think majority of people are not racist. But they, this unconscious stuff, but you're not anti-racist because it's not happened to you, you sort of pass by. Yes. So we had a question here from Robin in the audience about their great strengths, Paulette and Velma, and also about being a passive white person. I've just told you a snippet mm -hmm. of what's gone on with us and what's gone on with us in this area. For some people, it's far, far worse than this. And so when you're seeing it and hearing it, I mean, my dad who lives in the States, I couldn't believe it one day when I saw, a, we'd just come back from barbecue and um, the police stopped our car. And I never, ever had seen my dad the way he was. He was so aggressive to those police, but they in turn were aggressive to him. But I think it probably started with my dad first. But when you have, and, and this guy is really mild and so chillaxed. <laughs> I absolutely love my dad for being so chilled. But it was like he became a different person because of this police person that had confronted him. And it, for me, and that was a, as, a, as a child I saw that, but for me, as an adult, I recognized that it's because he's fa been faced with it over and over. So he tells me about in the 60s being in this country and having the skinheads 
and he's told me about lots of different things that have happened to him over time. And that build-up then mm. is when you are confronted with somebody, it's like you explode. And it's so sad. But unless you get the healing mm. and the healing and the healing, then, you know, you, you've got all this pent-up anger within you, mm. which is quite unfortunate, but that's the way it is sometimes. But I think Rob's so right. I think the way that you just gently put it out there. I think that, that when there's aggression, you can feel a little bit taken aback, but your grace and your gentleness and the very fact that you're not bitter, you're not holding on to it, is just incredible, absolutely, which is why I think that will have spoken to so many people and opened their eyes, which is the first thing we wanted to do. And then it's the, and don't be passive. And I think that was, as Rob said, such an important point that you can be not a racist, but you want to stand against it. And, and that's a huge, a huge thing that we just take for granted. Oh, I'm not racist, but what am I doing to, to stand up and stop it? So I, I think you were brilliant. <laughs> well, you know, and then sometimes too, you may think, well, I'm just on my own, what can I do? And you know, you can, we can feel helpless that way. You know, uh, even if you see something wrong and you say, well, I'm just on my own. But what I think can happen is, if you're on your own, but you see and you know something's wrong, well, find somebody else to join you. Yeah. Get other people to, to join you to, to do something about it. Mm. Because um, if one person can't do it, well, a whole group can do it. Like, you know, even if you're writing um, petitions or you're making a stand or you, you're going together. I, I remember uh, when we first came in this country when they had Make Poverty History. Mm. Well, we, we all went down into Birmingham, we were on the street, you know, and we were, we were there marching for, to make poverty history. Mm. Um, so we can get together and do things. And, and I strongly believe the church can be in the front of these things. Mm. It should be. And join together to do things. If maybe one church or one person can do it, but mm. we, can, we can work together when, when, when we see that there's something wrong, because we're not only commanded to, you know, to speak out for the, the poor and the, and the oppressed, um, but it makes good for living together. One of the things is, and then we, oh, no, we got a question at the back, um, based on what you've just said, Velma, is even having forums in which we as people of color can meet together, because me starting to talk to Velma and Velma talking to somebody else, all of a sudden we've got shared experiences and it makes such a difference when you're like, oh, oh my mm. gosh, you faced that one too? Mm. And it's like, it's, it's almost like, okay, I'm not going insane mm. that this mm. is happening mm. to me. And it feels so much better when you've got somebody that you can talk with and share about your experiences. But even, we've, we've um, got a neighborhood prayer group, well, we did have before COVID, um, <laughs> and one of the ladies there, Diana, she worked in Ghana, and, um, you know, she was telling me about some stuff, um, some stuff that happened there, but some stuff that's happened here, but just, even her as a white lady talking to me about some of the racism that she hears and understands about, mm. it's so comforting. Mm. It really, really is. 
But I, I guess it's, you just don't feel like you're by yourself, mm -hmm. you know? And I think one of the things that Velma told me quite early on was try and integrate as much as you can and try and get involved, you know? So I've tried to do my little bit within my limitations um, and, and just even sometimes being on, up on this stage, and mm. I, I, I love singing. I'm not the best of singers, but I do like singing. Um, so, you know, just even coming and being a part of this singing group and the welcoming, and, mm. and Velma gets involved in a lot of things so that people can see us. Um, so, especially when I'm yeah, doing welcoming, it is, I see people almost relax when I come. I'm there welcoming them, and they're a person of color. And, you know, it's like, oh, there's somebody else here. And I think if we all um, can encourage people of color to participate and be a part of every aspect of this church, then we will have a lovely cultural church. Because Birmingham's multicultural after all, mm -hmm. you know? We're going we're gonna to have to, to stop at this point, and I'm going to, Cass' going to close us down in a moment, but I just want to underscore that. I want to say it's very, very important that we stand against things, that we don't just say, well, it's not me that's doing it. That if we're the person in the queue and we're queue jumped, we say, no, I'm sorry, it's not me. Yeah. If we're in an office place and there are comments being made about someone, that we say that is not acceptable. It's really important. There's a story that Jesus told about, you know, about the day of judgment and whether people are with Jesus or not. And he says that the, out, the, 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 the factor that enabled people to be with Jesus for eternity. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. There is a proactive command to us who are part of a dominant culture to make sure that we don't just say, I'm not part of it, but that we stand against it. I want to say a huge thank you to you for, for coming and, and, and sharing this with us and having the courage to do that. I do want to say we are deeply sorry that you've had to live and that you do have to live this way in our town and that's wrong and that your children have to live this way in our schools and that's wrong. So I want to say a huge thank you and uh, I'll, I'll hand back to Kath. Just one thing, just picking up on something that you said about the police and I know your experiences have really not been great but what I would encourage us to do as Christians is to pray for the police, but also to not give up on the police. Because I know many men and women, part of our church and further afield, that are God-fearing, honest, not racist, and are prepared to stand up. And I think if we're in a situation where we see something and call the police and we don't get the response that we think we should, I think we should pursue it. We should take that further and make a complaint and follow it up. But I understand both of your families and your experiences have been not great with the police, but there are many great policemen and women. So as with every section of society, there's the good, there's the bad and the ugly, and, and there are some good ones out there as well. But we need to stand up and say something when it's, when it's not right. <laughs>
most definitely. Can I echo Donald's thank you? We love you guys. We're so proud to have you as part of our church. You enrich us and make us such a better community. And I am just in awe of your ability and God's strength to forgive, to be positive, to try and encourage us um, to be different. And, and I love that. So thank you. Um, what we want to say, if there's anybody out there this evening, and it sounds like a BBC programme, but I want to say, if there's anybody out there that's been really affected by what we've been talking about, it may be that you've been or are going through racism, or it may be that there have been other areas in your life that you've been hurt and you're struggling. The first thing I want to encourage you with is that there is a God who knows you. There is a God who loves you. There is a God who is able to meet you in your pain and your trauma and everything that you're going through. He's able to love you. And as these wonderful women have shown, he is able to tenderly nurse you and put you back together and enable you to not just survive, but these women are thriving in the midst of everything that's going through. It is incredible. They have such a a love for life, uh, and the people that God's created them to be, they're living their best lives and going for it, and I love that. And that's possible for all of us. And I want to encourage you that, that God is interested in your life and can help. And if you've got questions about that, then do get in touch with us. Or if there are things that you want to ask of Paula and Velma, I'm sure there are ways that we can facilitate a conversation, ways that maybe there's advice that they can give and and ways that they can speak into your life and to encourage you. We hope you found tonight shocking, encouraging, helpful and challenging. We want to stand with these guys. We want to see an end to racism in Sutton Coldfield, in this country, and in the world. And we hope that you'll join with us. A reminder as we see all the harvest stuff as well, join with us on Sunday at our three live streams, 8.30, 10.30, and 6.30. And then on Monday, we have Cafe Church. And we're looking at the whole subject of resilience. Maybe we should get you two to come and join us because you have shown incredible resilience and not giving up in the most extreme and horrific of circumstances. Take care, everybody, and we'll say goodbye from us, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Well done. Well done, guys. Very well done. Weren't they good?